Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Donald Trump cruises to another win in the Nevada caucuses. The former president wins over 99% of the vote with rival Nikki Haley not on the ballot. Special counsel Robert Hur's classified documents report has some damaging conclusions about President Biden and his mental competency. The president offers up a passionate response, but soon commits a gaffe. Supreme Court justices signal former President Trump will stay on Colorado's ballot. Takeaways from arguments and reactions. Over a million people are now sheltering in a city in the southern Gaza Strip, but Israel says it's one of the final strongholds for Hamas. Will the IDF conduct operations there? The latest on the war. A major shakeup in the Ukrainian military as President Volodymyr Zelensky fires the country's top commander. What this means for the Russia-Ukraine war going forward. Commercial real estate in a tight spot as office buildings sit empty. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning of more stress for smaller banks. Get the updates on what it means for you with the host of Entity Business. Super Bowl fans are ready for the big game, but many wanting to go in person can't afford record high ticket prices, what the average ticket is going for. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, February 9th. In today's top news, former President Donald Trump has won the Nevada caucuses with over 99% of the vote. As such, he'll receive all 26 of the state's delegates at the GOP's nominating convention in July. He was the only major candidate there since his competitor Nikki Haley participated in the state's primary instead. With his win in the U.S. Virgin Islands caucuses held at the same time, Trump has now won all four GOP contests he stood in so far. The former president received 74% of the vote in the territory, compared to Nikki Haley's 26%. That means he'll be awarded four more delegates. Trump's victory in Nevada was almost guaranteed after the Nevada Republican Party barred candidates participating in the primary from participating in caucuses. This meant that his main challenger, Haley, would not face him. Nevada proved to be another setback for the former South Carolina governor, as she finished Tuesday's primary behind none of these candidates. So uh, I don't know why she continues, but she's a, uh, you know, I, I don't really care if she continues. It's, uh, it's uh, I think it's bad for the party. I think it's actually bad for her, too. Shrugging off her loss, Haley vowed to stay in the race. At a rally in Los Angeles, she said she was in this for the long run. We will outsmart, we will outwork, and we will outlast. That is how we're going to win at the end of the day. The next contest between the two candidates will be in Haley's home state of South Carolina on February 24th. The former governor counting on her local roots to give her the edge. But Trump has reasons to be confident as well. The former president is popular among conservatives in the southern state. We have a big one coming up, as you know, in South Carolina. And the polls are indicating that we're, we're through the roof on that one. We're, we're leading by, I guess, 35 percent, 35 points. 
Trump is facing legal challenges in several states that seek to strike him off the ballot. But the U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday indicated that they were likely to side with him. With President Biden and Trump sweeping their respective party primaries, both candidates are looking at a rematch in November. All eyes will be on potential swing states like Nevada in that election. Joining us now is Jeff Kruger, a political analyst and TV radio host, to break down the Nevada caucuses. Very glad to have your insight today, Jeff. Does it surprise you at all that Trump got over 99% of the vote in Nevada? Uh, hey, Kevin, no. I, I knew he was uh, well-organized in Nevada. He's got a strong team there. I knew it was going to be an overwhelming victory. I think he was even pleased with uh, 99%, though. I mean, that is, uh, that's an amazing uh, victory. And, and now it goes to show you why Nikki Haley didn't want to compete in the caucuses, because she knew she'd get trounced. Yeah, well, Jeff, we saw a pretty good turnout there, about the same number of people voting in the primary as in the caucuses there. Right. Why do Nevadans like Trump? Well, the thing about it is, uh, you know, he's got ties there. I mean, he's got a lot of good friends there. A lot of the big donors uh, in Nevada are, are Trump supporters. Uh, he's someone who spent time in the state. And, and the thing about it is, uh, Nikki Haley said that it was rigged for Donald Trump. It was not rigged. Uh, Nevada has historically conducted caucuses, Kevin. This is what they do to elect their uh, delegates to the convention. The primary was sort of foisted on them by the state legislature. And the Nevada Republican Party said, no, we want to continue with caucuses. And uh, that's why Nikki Haley didn't compete, because she knew it was not even going to be close. So to lose to none of the above is a major embarrassment. But then to have President Trump win in such a, a great fashion uh, sends another message. And then she responds by saying it's rigged. It's really uh, indicative of the state of her campaign right now. Yeah. And why would she say that the Nevada caucuses are rigged? She's given such good sportsmanship all along here. I know. Well, I think uh, it's part of the desperation that she's feeling right now. She's now 0 for 4. As the report pointed out, he, he also won overwhelmingly in the Virgin Islands, uh, and he's poised to win in her home state. But then she keeps saying that she's going to continue on. And, and I really do agree with President Trump. I think the longer she does this, the more it's going to hurt whatever kind of political future she wants to have in the Republican Party. My thinking, Kevin, is that maybe she's going to run no labels or third party in, in some sort of a, a merge ticket with uh, Joe Manchin. I think that's a possibility because I think she's got a lot of donors behind her that want her to continue. That would be an interesting twist here. Jeff, tell us about Trump challenger Ryan Binkley. Well, he's the only <laughs> he's the only one that was uh, there. A very minor candidate, uh, someone that doesn't have uh, any name recognition, got less than uh, 1% uh, of the vote. You know, as a uh, talk show host and commentator, you know, I've had a lot of these uh, candidates on my program. Uh, he's not uh, someone who's ever registered among uh, my audience. Uh, I think it goes to show you the, the state of the competition to President Trump. I mean, it's pretty weak with pretty minor uh, candidates. Uh, I mean, I think he even did better than uh, Joe Biden did on the, on the Democrat side. I mean, Joe Biden's been getting like 96% of the vote but to get 99% is pretty, pretty amazing. So as the report pointed out, we've got Biden and we got Trump, and it looks like they're on a collision course uh, for November. All right, well, thanks so much for the update. Jeff Career, political analyst and TV radio host. Thanks, Kevin. Trump thanked Nevada Republicans at his campaign's watch party in Las Vegas 
after being projected the winner of yesterday's caucuses. And I sort of knew who was going to win. We wanted to get over 80, and we got 98. GOP candidate Ryan Binkley had just 1% of the vote. Trump has gained support among Hispanic voters since his first run for office in 2016. A recent poll by USA Today and Suffolk University had Latino support for Trump at 39% to Biden's 34%. Entity's Kelly Wright spoke with a political consultant and Trump surrogate at the watch party last night about why Trump's message is resonating with the Hispanic community. People, including Latinos, don't like what's going on in our country. We have an open border situation. We have inflation. Even though it's controlled, prices have not gone down. So the cost of living is still really high for Latinos. Uh, and in a community that, that is uh, struggling economically, that, that resonates, that message resonates. You know, when you have uh, high prices in rent, mortgage, to put food on the table, all those issues are affecting the American dream among Hispanics, among Latinos, and they're hurting. These people are coming across the border and taking resources from Latinos in this in this country. Uh, most of the people that are coming across, 10,000 a day, are taking coming directly to live in communities, uh, the Hispanic communities. And crime is on the rise. You saw what happened in New York, for example, and Latinos don't like that. Let's hear why some voters favor the former president. If it's not Trump, it's no one. Yes, if, if he's he's who I want, he's who America wants, and I want what America wants. We need to take it back. We need to really get some people in there that can make it, get us back on track. And Trump is the only one I know that can be treated so bad, and he doesn't even get upset. I've never seen anything like it. A rematch is going to suck, but Biden's going to uh, lose because Trump can think on his feet more than Biden can think on his feet. Biden can't think with a prompter in front of him. His policies are to fix America first, and then maybe we can go back to helping the rest of the world. But until then, uh, let's, let's take care of our own people first, get back on track, and then after that, we'll worry about worrying about helping everybody else. Colorado's 2024 presidential ballot will likely include former President Trump, and that's despite the state's efforts to disqualify the lead GOP candidate. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case yesterday. All nine justices seemed to display skepticism over arguments from attorneys challenging Trump. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Supreme Court justices on Thursday signaled they will side with former President Trump on his eligibility to be on the 2024 ballot. Trump did not attend the arguments, and most justices did not address January 6th, instead focusing on legal arguments around the 14th Amendment. Trump's lawyer Jonathan Mitchell argued Trump isn't covered by the so-called insurrectionist ban. A ruling from this court that affirms the decision below would not only violate term limits, but take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans. Attorney Jason Murray argued for Colorado voters who won their case in the lower court. States have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. But justices appeared much more skeptical of his argument. Chief Justice John Roberts said they were at war with history. The whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power. He questioned if a ruling in Colorado's favor would prompt other states to follow suit. It'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Justice Elena Kagan questioned the power Murray's position would grant to states. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. 
Murray engaged in several contentious exchanges with justices. Justice Neil Gorsuch at one point reprimanded his former clerk. No, nevertheless, they were no, put into that no, office. we're talking about Section 3. And Please don't change the hypothetical. Trump from Mar-a-Lago called the arguments a beautiful process. He says he believes in the U.S. and the Supreme Court. Can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, after arguments, called Trump's claim to presidential immunity and pushed to stay on the ballot outrageous. Trump continues to think that he is above the law, above the Constitution, and above the court system. Griswold says she hopes the justices hold Trump accountable. I don't believe that the president is a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's unclear how long the justices will take to issue their opinion. The Colorado primary is on Super Tuesday, March 5th. Trump stays on the ballot, pending a decision. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Special counsel Robert Hur's report released yesterday on the handling of classified documents did not charge President Biden with a crime, but it painted a picture of a forgetful commander-in-chief who failed to properly protect highly sensitive classified information. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the findings and their aftermath. The report found that Biden willfully retained classified information, including top-secret documents. But special counsel Herr wrote that nothing proved a willful intent by Biden to illegally hold on to classified information. Herr says Biden also won't be prosecuted because he would present to a jury as an elderly man with a poor memory. The report described the president's memory as hazy, fuzzy, faulty, poor, and having significant limitations. It noted that Biden could not recall defining milestones in his own life, such as when his son Beau died or when he served as vice president. Biden reacted to that depiction hours after the report's release. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Biden sparred with reporters after his remarks. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. That's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Mere minutes after vigorously defending his memory, Biden committed a gaffe, referring to the Egyptian president as the president of Mexico. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. The classified documents found in Biden's Delaware home included some marked as the highest top-secret sensitive information level. Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee called Hur's decision not to prosecute Biden a double standard. Former President Trump was charged with crimes related to his own handling of classified information by special counsel Jack Smith. Hur noted in his report there were distinctions between the Trump and Biden cases saying Trump was given multiple chances to return the documents and avoid prosecution, but did the opposite. Her also wrote the former president allegedly obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
A new national security bill presented by Senate Leader Chuck Schumer overcame its first hurdle yesterday. With 67 votes in favor and 32 against, the amended foreign aid package will be debated and amended on the Senate floor. It's a very good thing that the Senate has just voted to proceed to the National Security Supplemental. This is a good first step. The new bill includes $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and nearly $5 billion for Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific to deter Chinese aggression in the region. It also includes close to $10 billion for humanitarian assistance for civilians in Gaza, the West Bank, and other conflicts worldwide. The bill does not include any provisions for the border. Republicans blocked a broader bill that included border security measures earlier this week. Republican senators have already signaled that they will introduce amendments that will prolong the process indefinitely. If the bill is approved by the Senate, it faces uncertainty in the House whether many, where many Republicans oppose Ukraine aid. Stay with us. Over a million people are now sheltering in a city in the southern Gaza Strip. But Israel says it's one of the final strongholds for Hamas. Will the IDF conduct operations there? The latest updates on the war. A major shakeup in the Ukrainian military as President Volodymyr Zelensky fires the country's top commander. What this means for the Russia-Ukraine war going forward after the break. Good to have you back. Israel Defense Forces continue to battle their way further into the Gaza Strip as the fighting intensifies against Hamas terrorists. But will the IDF conduct military operations in Rafah, where over a million displaced Palestinians are now sheltering? And today's Jason Perry has the war update. Residents in the Gaza Strip surveyed the damage after an apparent Israeli strike hit the city of Rafah on Thursday morning. Rafah, which is in southern Gaza, is home to over a million people sheltering there now, more than half the population of the entire Gaza Strip. Today, if you throw a stone from the roof, in Rafah specifically, it will hit 10 people easily. What about three rockets coming down on a house? And on Wednesday, residents in Rafa were seen running between tents, only to find the remains of a car that was hit by an apparent airstrike. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday said Rafa is one of the last remaining strongholds of Hamas, and he's instructed the Israel Defense Forces to prepare to operate there. However, White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said he hasn't seen any plan that shows Israel is going to conduct major operations in Rafah anytime soon. And he added this. Any such plan, when you have more than a million folks that have been displaced down there, um, any such plan would have to factor in. A responsible military plan would factor in making sure that you can protect those civilians. And as I said, uh, given the circumstances and the conditions there that we see right now, uh, we think a military operation at this time would be a disaster for those people. But Israel, on the other hand, appears to be open about their plans to battle terrorists in Rafah and also their plans to continue protecting civilians in the war. Those efforts will continue nevertheless. 
as the IDF dismantles the main Hamas stronghold of Khan Yunus and advances on its last bastion, Rafah. We will, of course, secure safe passage for civilians out of a war zone where terrorists are trying to use them as human shields. And the Israel Defense Forces on Thursday reportedly detained two Americans in the Gaza Strip during a raid in Khan Yunus. The State Department did not release their names but said they are seeking additional information about the incident. This comes as Israel has almost 100,000 of its own citizens displaced from northern Israel as the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah continues to fire missiles and rockets into northern Israel. On Thursday, one of the strikes severely injured an Israeli soldier and injured two others. The Israeli military said it retaliated by striking Hezbollah terror infrastructure and a military compound in Lebanon where the launches took place. This comes just the day after Israel rejected Hamas's ceasefire proposal to release the remaining hostages in the Gaza Strip. Officials from the Hamas terrorist group on Thursday met with officials in Egypt to continue those talks for a ceasefire. Jason Perry, NTD News. And moving over to Ukraine, a huge shakeup in Ukraine's military yesterday. President Volodymyr Zelensky replacing the country's military chief, whom many Ukrainians see as a national hero. This comes after months of speculation about a rift between Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzhny. Today we had a frank discussion about what needs to be changed in the army. Urgent changes. The announcement marks the biggest rift in Ukraine's military since the start of the war. Replacing Zeluzhny is seen as a huge gamble. It comes at a time when Russian forces are gaining the upper hand nearly two years into the war. Everyday Ukrainians who spoke to the media yesterday said they're not happy with the decision. Firing the military chief could hurt Zelensky politically. Public polling shows trust in the general at over 90 percent. That's a bit higher than Zelensky's 77% from late last year. The former commander of Ukraine's land forces will now take over as military chief. And for a closer look, we bring in ben Brandon Weikert, a geopolitical analyst and author. Good morning, Brandon. There you are. So we just heard that Russia is gaining the upper hand in the war. So how much of an impact will that change have in the direction of the war, do you think? Uh, well, I think it's going to get worse for the Ukrainians now. Zeluzhny was uh, more than just a very popular general. He was trusted by his troops. Uh, he was very much a sort of frontline commander. Um, and his removal is an indicator that things are not going well in Kyiv, which is what I was writing a year ago at the Asia Times, and uh, our social media was suppressing that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that this move by Zelensky indicates not just a rift, but I think the fact that Victoria Newland was over in Kyiv about a week ago, I think it indicates that there was fears that Zeluzhny was going to launch a coup. Uh, at the very least, the end is nigh for the Zelensky regime in terms of it being an effective counterweight to Russia's invasion. Mm. So to put things in, into perspective here, so how common or unusual is a change of military leadership like this in the middle of a war? 
Well, if you look at the history of warfare, this is not uncommon. In fact, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War was notorious for having gone through so many generals. Um, the problem is, is that the Ukrainians do not have the kind of resource depth, personnel depth, uh, or really the staying power anymore that they did at the start of the war. The country's gone from about 42 million people to about 28 million, and it's dropping. So they don't have a huge bench that they can be pulling people from. And again, General Zeluzhny had 90 percent approval rating that's insane and so getting rid of a guy that popular especially when he was actually a very effective leader uh, is very bad and the reason they got rid of him was because he was maintaining secret contacts with his russian counterparts he was trying to get a ceasefire even though zelensky had basically nixed the whole idea of a ceasefire which is why so many ukrainians were dying oh that's a very interesting point that you raised there but other speculations are maybe that Zeluzhny was beca because Zeluzhny <clears throat> was too popular that Zelensky wanted to replace yeah. him. Um, how likely do you think that is, especially since you're mentioning or since we also heard that this could actually work the other way around for Zelensky? Yeah, no, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, that's also something that's happened in wars in the past is the general gets bigger than the leader and the leader starts getting very twitchy. Um, and if I were Zelensky, I would be very twitchy because Zeluzhny is a very uh, uh, competent and obviously popular leader. So getting rid of this guy uh, is a double-edged sword. It might buy Zelensky some time to kind of shore up his base. But at the same time, it hurts the Ukrainian war effort and it certainly weakens Zelensky. So what about in terms of tactics and strategy in the war, though? In a statement, Zelensky actually mentioned some urgent changes that he thinks are needed. So on that front, what changes do you think Zelensky is looking for? Well, um, you know, up until now, Zelensky has been crying havoc and letting slip the dogs of war. This was his big problem with Zeluzhny, as Zeluzhny was trying to get a negotiated ceasefire with the Russian military. Um, so the only kind of change I can think of is not good for Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky is clearly committed to this idea that he can win the war. And what does victory look like? Mm -hmm. It seems like he thinks they can take Crimea back and eastern Ukraine. And logistically, that is just not possible, which is what Zeluzhny has been saying for about eight months now at least right and just in a couple of seconds because of course we should talk about the appointed replacement here who is Zersky and what can we expect from him uh, he's probably much more of a yes man to Zelensky, which could be a big problem because, again, the Ukrainian military does not have the combat effectiveness that it did at the start of the war hmm. all right thank you so much Brandon Weikert for these insights I you. appreciate it Coming up, the FCC outlawing robocalls using AI-generated voices, saying it's a threat to election security and consumers. The decision comes after calls impersonating President Biden targeted thousands of New Hampshire voters. California state officials stepping in to address Oakland's rising crime. That's as the city's former police chief files a lawsuit claiming wrongful termination. After an attack on NYPD officers in New York City's Times Square, a group of illegal immigrants has been charged. The Manhattan District Attorney pressed on his previous decision to release without bail. That's coming up. Good to have you back. And we also have NTD's David Lamb with us now. Good morning to give us the latest updates on scam robocalls using AI-generated voices. So David, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so the FCC just 
made it illegal to use robocalls that include AI-generated voices. So um, this, this came after President Joe Biden's voice was mimicked um, and calls were being made to New Hampshire voters for the January 23rd primary. So it was using uh, one of Biden's you know, uh, most often used quotes. It was something along the lines of, what a bunch of malarkey. And it was in discouraging voters from voting and saying that if they voted in the primary, their ballot wouldn't be casted in the November election. So, um, you know, like the New Hampshire Secretary of State, David Scanlon said, New Hampshire had a taste of how AI can be used inappropriately in the election process. And this is something that they are, uh, won't be tolerated and said that they don't want people to exploit the AI technology to mimic people's voices and also affect election integrity. Mm. That's very interesting. So David, what other methods are um, those perpetrators actually using to manipulate people? Yeah, so with robocalls, they're using methods to target people's hearts and emotions mm. and extorting family members, especially like vulnerable uh, people like the community, like elderly people who aren't familiar with modern scams and technology. Right. So uh, for example, it's, it's called romance scams because it targets people's hearts. Um, and in some severe cases, there's <clears throat> a case last year about um, a child's voice was impersonated mm. and, and a parent got a call saying, oh, um, got a call from that fake voice saying, hey, I'm in trouble, I need money, can you send money here? Mm. And it turns out the parent found out that that kid was in the house already, safe and sound, just sitting downstairs. So, um, you know, voices also being impersonating uh, celebrities as well. Yeah, well, and David, this is, comes to no surprise. The FCC has clamped down on these robocallers before with a $5 million fine on this one group that was calling an area with predominantly black Americans living there and telling them that if voting by mail would make them more susceptible to arrest and even to being forced to get the vaccine. Just totally ridiculous here. So what are some of the penalties that the FCC is setting forth in all this? Yeah, that's right. So the FCC is um, basically, they, they could find companies that use uh, a fake AI, AI-generated voices, find them for up to $23,000 per call. And they would also be able to block service providers for the, those companies. Now, for, the reg, for people who are affected, who are getting the calls, they could sue the companies and recover up to $1,500 per call. Now, um, and this also gives, the, this regulation also gives state attorneys general the ability to crack down on those who violate this. It's another avenue for them to uh, make the lawsuits. Right, as we just established, it's, robocalls are a big opportunity to scam people. It's pretty well known to be uh, involved in those scam calls. So can you give us a little bit more insight on where they are coming from? Yeah, so it's generally, like it's, it's hard to pinpoint where, uh, but in the internationally, there's been call centers from around the world, India, for example. Now, in this particular case, the New Hampshire Attorney General said on Tuesday that they identified two companies responsible for the, these calls that were impersonating uh, Joe Biden. Uh, one is a Texas-based company called LifeCorp. LifeCorp, that's behind, that's the source. And they were using another company called Lingo Telecom that were making the calls. And these went to thousands of uh, thousands of New Hampshire voters, majority majority Democratic voters. Um, and interestingly enough, both of these companies have been investigated in the past for illegal robocalls. 
Really tricky stuff. Yeah, that sophisticated AI. It can clone voices and even generate images, and that's already starting to show up in American elections and even those around the world. David Lamb, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And a former California police chief fired from his post last year has sued the city of Oakland and its mayor. He says he was unfairly term unlawfully terminated in retaliation. That's as state officials are stepping in to address rising crime in the city. On Thursday, California Governor Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Bonta said they will deploy state attorneys to boost criminal prosecutions in Oakland and the East Bay. This comes as Newsom announced on Tuesday he would deploy 120 California Highway Patrol officers to Oakland to assist with targeted crackdowns on criminal activity, including vehicle and retail theft. Recent footage posted on the Citizen app shows a man dressed in black moving from table to table, quickly snatching phones from their displays and stuffing them into his pockets. He then walks out the store and passes by two police cars. Oakland has been without a permanent police chief since LaRon Armstrong was fired. Armstrong filed a lawsuit in Alameda County Superior Court on Monday, seeking reinstatement as police chief. Mayor Shen Thao fired him in February 2023 after an investigation found he had allegedly mishandled officer misconduct cases. Armstrong was later cleared of wrongdoing. The probe was ordered by a federal monitor overseeing the Oakland Police Department. Armstrong's lawsuit claims he was fired in retaliation for criticizing that federal monitor. In an interview with California insider CMAC Karami, Armstrong said rampant crime has destroyed Oakland's reputation, with many in the community fearing they would become a victim. People not willing to go outside at night. I know so many seniors in our community who have seen me and said, uh, Chief, I don't come out at night because I'm afraid. I'm afraid to drive in the city at night. I'm afraid to shop at night. I'm afraid to park my car in certain areas because I know that my car is going to be burglarized. Uh, people are leaving their entire car with all windows down because they've been burglarized so many times that they don't want to replace windows anymore. So they just leave them all down and remove everything of value from their cars. And so it really has become something that uh, people are even adjusting to, uh, the lack of safety. And so that really is concerning. He says there are reports of people hearing gunshots around the clock in the city. It also doesn't help that police staffing has been a challenge, leading to long response times. Armstrong adds that existing policies make it difficult for police to do their job, and that people have prioritized officer accountability over community needs. For example, a policy says an officer cannot pursue a burglar unless the crime committed is a felony. A stolen car is not a violent felony. A burglary uh, committed is not a violent felony, so then Oakland police officers cannot pursue that car. But how does that look to the public? If you're the person whose car was just stolen and you're standing there watching your car drive off and watching a police officer that cannot pursue that car, that definitely has an impact on that community member who now believes that the police didn't do anything. And that's the story that they tell. Unfortunately, it's not the officer's fault. It's the policy that prohibits the officer from pursuing that car that stops him from pursuing it. Last month, In-N-Out Burger announced it would close its first location in its 75-year history due to car break-ins, property damage, theft, and robberies at its only restaurant in Oakland. And in New York City, seven illegal immigrants were indicted yesterday in connection with an attack on two police officers in Times Square last month. And according to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, five out of the seven suspects had been arrested before. This assault, uh, as it did to many of you, sickened me uh, and outraged me. Based on our thorough investigation, I stand here today confident uh, that we have identified the roles 
of every person who broke the law uh, and participated in this heinous attack. Bragg has been pressed about his decision to release five suspects without bail, considering their immigration status and lack of connection to the community. All seven suspects now face charges including assault, obstruction, evidence tampering, and hindering prosecution. The NYPD said the physical altercation ensued as officers tried to break up a disorderly group outside a migrant shelter. According to police, the officers were repeatedly kicked and punched and were left with minor injuries. Just ahead, commercial real estate in a tight spot as office buildings sit empty and prices plummet. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning of more stress for smaller banks. We take a look at the details with the host of Entity Business in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. And now we have NTD business host Don Ma with us here to give us the latest updates from the financial world. Don, tell us what you have for us today. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the commercial real estate sector in the United States. So some fears are now uh, brewing among investors about potential turmoil in this area. Um, so now if you remember, remember earlier this week, I talked to you about New York Community Bank. Yeah. And there was a uh, a lot of trouble with that bank, and guess what? They were exposed to the U.S. Com commercial real estate market, uh, and their shares plunged, uh, and that's adding to the fears. So the current high interest rate environment has put pressure on the entire sector of commercial real estate. Uh, the U.S. Uh, market of commercial real estate has been in turmoil since the pandemic, and it's uh, not just contained within this sector. Uh, turmoil in, in the commercial real estate area is putting stress on banks, regional banks as well, because uh, regional banks finance mm -hmm. much of this market. Uh, so New York Community Bank is a stark remi reminder that um, some banks are just only starting to feel the pain here. Wow. So I think with what, with what happened to New York uh, Community Bank, what we really want to know now is how worried are you actually that this is going to become more widespread? Right. So first of all, NYCB, uh, its shares fell, fell to a 23-year low yesterday. Um, they have fallen the shares 60% uh, since last week. So if, if this is, is this, uh, whether this is going to be a widespread issue, uh, analysts have said that uh, for months now that commercial real estate uh, tied borrowers are at risk of defaulting on their loans. Um, of course, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, this is because of high interest rates uh, right now. And adding to that is low occupancy rates for offices. Uh, some experts are arguing that uh, NYCB could be a unique case. But still, other analysts believe that although there are elements specific to NYCB, there are also elements that are reflective uh, of the entire banking system, broader risks in the entire banking system. So negative events at one bank can uh, impact confidence in the overall sector. That is a possibility. So this in turn could spread to many other banks and uh, if they have similar risks. Yeah, it's really important, especially considering that S&P Capital IQ says that local banks give out half of those commercial property loans. And that brings us to our next question. Mm -hmm. Is there a crisis looming in the commercial real estate sector? 
Well, there's definitely a degree of fear right now and worry for the sector. Commercial real estate investment have plummeted to the lowest level in 10 years in 2023. So definitely, this is not a vote of confidence for the sector. Even Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, said yesterday that, that she expects additional bank stress and financial losses from weakness in the real estate market. Uh, she said, and I'll read you a quote from yesterday's hearing, that valuations are falling. Uh, and so it's obvious that there's going to be stress and losses. Uh, but also a huge concern here is if exposure to the troubled commercial real estate market uh, poses systemic risk to the banking system. And I think that is a concern as well, uh, whether there will be contagion risk. Investors uh, fear that weak demand for offices uh, could trigger a wave of defaults and put pressure on banks. Uh, but Yellen yesterday sought to downplay those commercial real estate risks. She said that she hopes and believes that this will not end up being a systemic risk to the banking system. Um, I mean, we still remember from last year what happened to Silicon Valley Bank um, and other banks as well, Signature Bank, First Republic. But I think maybe we can take comfort in knowing that bank uh, officials and central bank regulators uh, potentially do have the tools to prevent a systemic crisis from happening. Right. Nevertheless, uh, some very serious issues there to keep a close eye on. But on something less heavy here, we just talked about some interesting news coming from the airline industry. So please fill us in on that. All right. Just a quick update on that. Uh, European airline carrier Finnair started a trial at its Helsinki airport hub. Passengers can volunteer to be weighed at the departure gate. Uh, this allows the airline to refine weight estimates for their planes before takeoff. These voluntary weigh-ins aren't linked to individual bookings or passenger data. Uh, it's all anonymous. Uh, this is according to a Finnair spokesman. The airline plans to weigh 1,200 passengers for the winter season, then more during the summer. Finnair is collecting data about passenger weight and their hand luggage to calculate aircraft balance and performance needed for safe flights. So Finnair is collecting data for winter and summer since passengers uh, wear heavier clothing and coats during the cold Finnish winters. The trial started Monday and by yesterday they already had 800 volunteers take part. Oh, people are really taking to this. Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Stay with us. Football fans are excited about Sunday's big game, but record high ticket prices are keeping many from going in person. Their reactions, plus a Las Vegas attraction that's become the new star of this year's Super Bowl. Super Bowl 58 just around the corner as fans get ready to watch the big game. We hear from some excited fans on who they think is taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Good to have you back. Football fans are excited about Sunday's Super Bowl between the San Francisco 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs. But sky-high ticket prices have sidelined average fans wanting to attend the event. Football fans rejoice. The Super Bowl is finally here. This year's host will be Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. The venue holds 65,000 spectators. But record ticket prices have many wondering if the NFL has forgotten its core fans. But I think right now, like, it's just, um, you know, there's for uh, for an organization to say that we're for the people and fans and want to have an experience and things like that. Uh, it, it is very it is uh, it is kind of out of touch with what the fan base wants. 
How much are tickets selling for this year? What we're focused on right now is that average ticket price sold, which is right around $8,600, which is in line and slightly above the LA Super Bowl two years ago. This fan has a suggestion to help solve the costly ticket problem. For the average fan, make a lottery like they do with the German games, so you at least can apply and at least give the average fan a chance to, to attend the game because the fans are making the NFL, not the NFL is creating the fans. While many fans won't see the game in person, Las Vegas' newest star attraction, The Sphere, is wowing football fans with Super Bowl-themed content. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's like almost 3D, like Patrick Mahomes like throwing a football and then it's like coming right at you, it's, it's amazing. Well, when we were just driving around, oh, what is this big structure again in Vegas, until we saw the lights and the different kinds of uh, animation, so we got excited. Throughout the game, content on the Exosphere will run live in response to action on the field. The 366-foot-tall and 516-foot-wide arena cost $2.3 billion to build. It's been billed as the world's largest spherical structure. Well, who do you think will be winning the big game? Well, it's Super Bowl 58, now just two days away. Entity's Dave Martin asks fans for their predictions. I'm here in New York City talking to locals about who they think is going to win the Super Bowl. Let's go talk to a few of them. Uh, Kansas team. Kansas City? Yeah, Kansas City. Well, why are you picking Kansas City? Uh, I think they're the underdog. <laughs> well, my 49ers. My 49ers all the way. Yeah, why are you picking them? Uh, well, I was fr I'm from San Francisco. Um, also, the Chiefs, they just cry to the refs. That's all they do. That's all they do. And the refs, the refs are going to be, they're not going to be biased to Super Bowl. I think, or I hope the 49ers win. I hope so too. But in all honesty, the way things are going, I think I would, if I was putting money on it, I'd have the Chiefs winning. I have all confidence in the 49ers. Me too. Um, as long as Brock Purdy plays well, like in the beginning, I think, I think they'll definitely like have a good chance of overthrowing the, the Chiefs. How important is it to you that Taylor Swift is out the game Sunday? Uh, to be honest, it's, it's not actually that important. I, uh, I think so. I think, I think people are being a little unfair on her. There's, there's a lot of hate. Um, but again, the Swifties can be a little insufferable at times. So, you know, I, I would definitely agree. Like they're taking time away from the athletes who actually played, rather to interview someone who's just, you know, watching from above. I think the Chiefs. Me too. I think the Chiefs. Yeah. Why are you guys picking the Chiefs? The, um, we love Taylor Swift. <laughs> I think I think she'll make it. I think because obviously the time difference in Tokyo, so I think she'll be able to make it for Travis. Well, there you have it. Now, the Niners are actually slight one and a half point favorites. The game, meanwhile, will be played 6:30 Eastern time in Las Vegas, and it'll be shown on CBS. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. Taylor Swift, the big topic during Super Bowl. There's yeah. all these reports, even how Taylor Swift could affect Super Bowl security. She's very popular. Yeah, and you know, the Chiefs have won three Super Bowls, so we'll have to see. All right, there we go. Uh, and we are heading to a quick break here, but we'll be back in a couple of seconds, so stay with us. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original, award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. 
Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories today. Supreme Court justices signal former President Trump will stay on Colorado's ballot. Take away from arguments and reactions. Special counsel Robert Hur's classified documents report has some damaging conclusions about President Biden and his mental competency. The president offers up a passionate response, but soon commits a gaffe. Another win for Trump as he sweeps the Nevada caucuses. This just days after his rival Nikki Haley had a less than stellar finish in the state's Republican primaries. A major shakeup in the Ukrainian military. President Volodymyr Zelensky is replacing the country's military chief, who many see as a national hero. What this means for Kyiv's war efforts and how Ukrainians are reacting. And in Iceland, a volcano has erupted for the third time in as many months. Residents of the nearby fishing village have been displaced since January. Paris has unveiled the medals for the 2024 Summer Olympic Games, and this year's medals have a unique piece of city history embedded in them. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, February 9th, and in today's top news, Colorado's 2024 presidential ballot will likely include former President Trump, despite the state's efforts to disqualify the lead GOP candidate. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case yesterday. All nine justices seem to display skepticism over arguments from attorneys challenging Trump. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Supreme Court justices on Thursday signaled they will side with former President Trump on his eligibility to be on the 2024 ballot. Trump did not attend the arguments, and most justices did not address January 6th, instead focusing on legal arguments around the 14th Amendment. Trump's lawyer Jonathan Mitchell argued Trump isn't covered by the so-called insurrectionist ban. A ruling from this court that affirms the decision below would not only violate term limits, but take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans. Attorney Jason Murray argued for Colorado voters who won their case in the lower court. States have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. But justices appeared much more skeptical of his argument. Chief Justice John Roberts said they were at war with history. The whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power. He questioned if a ruling in Colorado's favor would prompt other states to follow suit. It'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Justice Elena Kagan questioned the power Murray's position would grant to states. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. Murray engaged in several contentious exchanges with justices. Trump from Mar-a-Lago called the arguments a beautiful process. He says he believes in the U.S. and the Supreme Court. It's unclear how long the justices will take to issue their opinion. The Colorado primary is on Super Tuesday, March 5th. Trump stays on the ballot, pending a decision. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For further analysis on that case before the Supreme Court, we invite Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Really great to have you with us here, Hans. Why are the justices skeptical of the push to kick Trump off the ballot? 
Well, I look, there are multiple reasons why the 14th Amendment uh, provision that's at issue here doesn't apply to Donald Trump. Uh, I think they were very skeptical, uh, properly so, of the idea that, as you said, a single state uh, could take a presidential candidate off the ballot and, and uh, that could decide a presidential race. All you have to do is look at the 2000 presidential election down in Florida when it came down to a single state. And there were a lot of arguments about the fact that the, this particular provision of the 14th Amendment, um, there is no federal statute in place providing enforcement for that provision. And for over 150 years, uh, there have been no attempts to actually try to use the 14th Amendment because, there's, there, like I said, there's, there's no federal uh, enforcement mechanism in place. I, I will tell you, I think Jonathan Murray, the lawyer, did not do his client a lot of good with what often seemed like emotional arguments as opposed to straightforward constitutional arguments. Okay, and yeah, there is definitely no clear way on how to enforce this, but how important is it, as Justice Clarence Thomas pointed out, that states very, very rarely bar candidates on insurrectionary grounds? Well, I think they very rarely do that because uh, they don't have the authority to do it. And in fact, as you know, that was a big issue in, in the claim. Uh, Murray kept saying that an insurrection occurred on January 6th. Uh, I think a lot of people questioned that. The justices questioned that. There was no organized effort with violence to take over control of the U.S. government. That's the generally accepted definition of insurrection. Yeah, there was criminal trespassing at the Capitol. That should have happened. But calling it an insurrection, it just it's just not the case. And yet the lawyer for these voters uh, kept doing that. I, I think he really went over the top, this lawyer, and he lost the justices when he opened up, opened up his argument by claiming that uh, Trump led the, the worst violent attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812. To compare British troops invading the U.S. Capitol and burning it to criminal trespassing, which, you know, shouldn't have happened at the, at the U.S. Capitol, that was such an absurd and over-the-top um, historical comparison that I think from that very moment uh, he was hurting his client's case. Very interesting, Hans. We've had analysts on this show that say that the question of whether or not there was an insurrection that, that Trump committed wouldn't even make it to the Supreme Court because there'd be other hurdles before that. Can you explain Chief Justice John Roberts' rebuttal that the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power? Yes. You'll notice, for example, there's language in there saying that, uh, and this was actually a bone of contention in the argument. There's language in there saying that if you had previously um, participated in insurrection or, or rebellion, you couldn't be an elector for president. There's nothing about saying you can't be president. And that's because they wanted to make sure that there weren't insurrectionists as electors in states, or that individuals were elected to be senators and members of Congress. The president and vice president are never mentioned. And again, the lawyer for the voters who are trying to remove um, Trump from the ballot really wasn't able to answer that by the chief justice. In fact, you know, at one point, the lawyer um, called concerns raised by the chief justice 
frivolous. That is not something that you say to the Chief Justice of the United States. Well, thank you so much for this update. Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for having me. Special Counsel Robert Hur's report released yesterday on the handling of classified documents did not charge President Biden with a crime, but it painted a picture of a forgetful commander-in-chief who failed to properly protect highly sensitive classified information. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the findings and their aftermath. The report found that Biden willfully retained classified information, including top-secret documents. But special counsel Herr wrote that nothing proved a willful intent by Biden to illegally hold on to classified information. Herr says Biden also won't be prosecuted because he would present to a jury as an elderly man with a poor memory. It noted that Biden could not recall defining milestones in his own life, such as when his son Beau died or when he served as vice president. Biden reacted to that depiction hours after the report's release. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Biden sparred with reporters after his remarks. How it's totally bad is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Mere minutes after vigorously defending his memory, Biden committed a gaffe, referring to the Egyptian president as the president of Mexico. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. The classified documents found in Biden's Delaware home included some marked as the highest top-secret sensitive information level. Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee called Hur's decision not to prosecute Biden a double standard. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Donald Trump has won the Nevada caucuses with over 99% of the vote. As such, he'll receive all 26 of the state's delegates at the GOP's nominating convention in July. He was the only major candidate there since his competitor Nikki Haley participated in the state's primary instead. With his win in the U.S. Virgin Islands caucuses held at the same time, Trump has now won all four GOP contests he stood in so far. The former president received 74 percent of the vote in the territory, compared to Nikki Haley's 26 percent. That means he'll be awarded four more delegates. Trump's victory in Nevada was almost guaranteed after the Nevada Republican Party barred candidates participating in the primary from participating in caucuses. This meant that his main challenger, Haley, would not face him. Nevada proved to be another setback for the former South Carolina governor, as she finished Tuesday's primary behind none of these candidates. So uh, I don't know why she continues, but she's a, uh, you know, I, I don't really care if she continues. It's, uh, it's, uh, I think it's bad for the party. I think it's actually bad for her, too. Shrugging off her loss, Haley vowed to stay in the race. At a rally in Los Angeles, she said she was in this for the long run. We will outsmart, we will outwork, and we will outlast. That is how we're going to win at the end of the day. The next contest between the two candidates will be in Haley's home state of South Carolina on February 24th. 
the former governor counting on her local roots to give her the edge. But Trump has reasons to be confident as well. The former president is popular among conservatives in the southern state. With President Biden and Trump sweeping their respective party primaries, both candidates are looking at a rematch in November. All eyes will be on potential swing states like Nevada in that election. Trump thanked Nevada Republicans at his campaign's watch party in Las Vegas after being projected the winner of yesterday's caucuses. And I sort of knew who was going to win. You get 98%. We wanted to get over 80, and we got 98. GOP candidate Ryan Binkley had just 1% of the vote. Trump has gained support among Hispanic voters since his first run for office in 2016. A recent poll by USA Today and Suffolk University had Latino support for Trump at 39% to Biden's 34%. Entity's Kelly Wright spoke with a political consultant and Trump surrogate at the watch party last night about why Trump's message is resonating with the Hispanic community. People, including Latinos, don't like what's going on in our country. We have an open border situation. We have inflation. Even though it's controlled, prices have not gone down. So the cost of living is still really high for Latinos. Uh, and in a community that, that is uh, struggling economically, that, that resonates, that message resonates. You know, when you have uh, high prices in rent, mortgage, to put food on the table, all those issues are affecting the American dream among Hispanics, among Latinos, and they're hurting. These people are coming across the border and taking resources from Latinos in this in this country. Uh, most of the people that are coming across, 10,000 a day, are taking coming directly to live in communities, uh, the Hispanic communities. And crime is on the rise. You saw what happened in New York, for example, and Latinos don't like that. Coming up, a major shakeup in the Ukrainian military. President Volodymyr Zelensky is replacing the country's military chief, who many see as a national hero. What this means for Kyiv's war efforts and how Ukrainians are reacting. And in Iceland, a volcano has erupted for the third time in months. Residents of the nearby fishing village have been displaced since January. A creative new addition to the 2024 Paris Olympic Games is metal design Stay tuned to see what they have in store for the athletes coming up. Welcome back, and now to the Israel-Hamas war. Israeli forces began bombing areas in the city of Rafah yesterday, where more than half of Gaza's population is sheltering. Israel says Rafah is one of the last remaining strongholds of Hamas. President Biden yesterday suggesting that Israel's military response has been, in his words, over the top. The White House also saying yesterday that it would not support any plans by Israel for major military operations in Rafah. Biden has said he's been pushing for increased humanitarian aid for Palestinian civilians and to get a temporary ceasefire in place to allow for the release of hostages. Israel began its military offensive after Hamas terrorists from Gaza killed 1,200 people and took over 250 hostages in Israel on October 7th last year. Moving on to Ukraine, a huge shakeup there in the military yesterday. President Volodymyr Zelensky replacing the country's military chief, 
who many Ukrainians see as a national hero. This comes after months of speculation about a rift between Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzny. Today we had a frank discussion about what needs to be changed in the army. Urgent changes. The announcement marks the biggest rift in Ukraine's military since the start of the war. Replacing Zaluzhny is seen as a huge gamble. It comes at a time when Russian forces are gaining the upper hand nearly two years into the war. Everyday Ukrainians who spoke to the media yesterday said they're not happy with the decision. Firing the military chief could hurt Zelensky politically. Public polling shows trust in the general at over 90 percent. That's a bit higher than Zelensky's 77 percent from late last year. The former commander of Ukraine's land forces will now take over as military chief. And earlier, I spoke to Brandon Weikert, a geopolitical analyst and author. I asked him what direction he thinks the war is headed after the firing of the top Ukrainian general and reports of Russia having the upper hand. Uh, well, I think it's going to get worse for the Ukrainians now. Zeluzhny was uh, more than just a very popular general. He was trusted by his troops. Uh, he was very much a sort of frontline commander. Um, and his removal is an indicator that things are not going well in Kyiv, which is what I was writing a year ago at the Asia Times, and uh, our social media was suppressing that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that this move by Zelensky indicates not just a rift, but I think the fact that Victoria Newland was over in Kyiv about a week ago, I think it indicates that there was fears that Zeluzhny was going to launch a coup. Uh, at the very least, the end is nigh for the Zelensky regime in terms of it being an effect counterweight to Russia's invasion. So what about in terms of tactics and strategy in the war, though? In a statement, Zelensky actually mentioned some urgent changes that he thinks are needed. So on that front, what changes do you think Zelensky is looking for? Well, um, you know, up until now, Zelensky has been crying havoc and letting slip the dogs of war. This was his big problem with Zeluzhny, as Zeluzhny was trying to get a negotiated ceasefire with the Russian military. Um, so the only kind of change I can think of is not good for Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky is clearly committed to this idea that he can win the war. And what does victory look like? Mm -hmm. It seems like he thinks they can take Crimea back and eastern Ukraine. And logistically, that is just not possible, which is what Zeluzhny has been saying for about eight months now at least right of course we should talk about the appointed replacement here who is Zersky and what can we expect from him uh, he's probably much more of a yes man to Zelensky, which could be a big problem because, again, the Ukrainian military does not have the combat effectiveness that it did at the start of the war hmm. all right thank you so much Brandon Weikert for these insights I you. appreciate it a volcano in Iceland erupted on Thursday for the third time since December. It sprayed streams of lava up to 260 feet in the air and triggered an emergency warning in the southwest of the country. The Icelandic Civil Defense Agency said the lava flow from the eruption is much greater than anticipated and was less than three hours away from a hot water pipeline that serves the entire region. The eruption began around 6 a.m. local time according to the Icelandic Meteorological Office. Though the strength of the eruption had decreased by mid-afternoon, lava continued to spew from parts of the fissure. Canadian tourist Mark Gibbons recalls his experience. As we were driving, we could see the fissure just expanding and the lava uh, rising upwards in these giant fountains. And 
the video doesn't quite capture the moment and seeing just this magma just raining and uh and we had the windows down just to uh, to capture the video my wife i was driving my wife was uh, holding the camera Iceland's president, Guthi Johannesson, posted a photograph of the eruption as seen from his residence on social media. He said, Our thoughts are with the people of Grindavik, who cannot reside in their beautiful town. This too shall pass. The previous eruption in the area started on January 14th and lasted roughly two days. Lava flows reached the outskirts of Grindavik, whose nearly 4,000 inhabitants had been evacuated. Some houses were set alight. The home of Chanel Dior in Louis Vuitton, France, is renowned around the world for high-end fashion and luxury brands. And that same sense of style can certainly be seen in the metal designs for the upcoming Olympics in Paris this summer. Unveiled yesterday, each medal features a piece of the Eiffel Tower's original iron structure. Following renovation work during the 20th century, certain metallic elements were removed from the Eiffel Tower and have been carefully preserved ever since. They have now been repurposed to create the medal's hexagonal centerpiece, a reference to France's geometric shape. The president of the Paris 2024 Organizing Committee says they married the strongest symbol of the Games, the medal, with the ultimate symbol of Paris and France around the world, the Eiffel Tower. And to wrap up our show, an image of a napping polar bear curled up on an iceberg is the winner of this year's Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice Award. British amateur photographer Nima Sarikani captured the image off Norway's Svalbard archipelago. More than 75,000 people voted in the competition. That's a record number. It was chosen from a short list of 25 images narrowed down from around 50,000 entries. Hey, well, you got a nap somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And it looks like a beautiful picture. And I think I read somewhere that he was um, aiming to also bring a little bit of hope uh, of, of the situation, you know, those uh, polar bears living situation and that it will get better at some point. Really a Kodak moment. Yeah. All right. We have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.